Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a class from our 2022 Elul Learning Series. Hello there. Good evening. Um, uh, it's, it's going to be a deep dive into philosophy tonight, so I hope you're awake for that. <laughs> okay. Um, the um, When we talk about... Um, the themes of the high holidays, um, thinking about, you know, remember the, the, the title for this general series is Back to the Basics. So what I thought I would do is literally go back to the basics in terms of how the Jewish tradition understands who we are as human beings. Um, and in order to, because Jews tend to think that the whole world is Jewish and that at least if they're not Jewish, they at least think the same way that Jews do. Um the, what I'm going to do is, is, is show you some other ways in which people understand the human being and human faults. And then I'm going to t- talk about the Jewish tradition so that you can see that it really is a distinctive tradition in terms of how we understand moral life and what happens when we, when we mess up, when we do something wrong. So, um, let's take, um, I'm going to take, uh, two, um, two secular um, philosophical traditions, um, just to give you a sense of that. And then we'll look at Christianity and we'll look at Judaism. So let's start with uh, Thomas Hobbes. This one's going to bring you some of you back to your college days, but that's okay. Um, the, um, the, if you remember, uh, Thomas Hobbes believes, he's a 17th century British philosopher, um, believes that the human being uh, the, the characteristic, the, the central characteristic of the human being is a will to power. And that therefore, in a state of nature, um, everybody would be trying to basically take advantage of everybody else and maybe even at the expense of taking the other people's lives. And so life in a state of nature is, as he put it, nasty, brutish, and short. Right? Because if you are in a state of nature, then you are always in fear of what other people are going to do to you. And even somebody who is very powerful, let's say, for some reason, ultimately has to sleep. And so even people who are very powerful are vulnerable. And it's for that reason that human beings decide to create a a civil society, the Leviathan, as he puts as he calls it, in which you give up some of your rights in the state of nature in order to be able to live in a civil society that um, that will at least protect you. And so consequently, when you are when you have done that, when you have uh, you have left the state of nature and you have agreed to give up some of your rights, like stealing from people, killing, because the other thing is that in a state of nature, as he puts it, there's no productivity because nobody would bother producing anything because it could be stolen from you the next day. There's also no agriculture. Uh, none of that, no, nothing that requires sustained work would continue to exist in a state of nature um, because of the fact that, you know, it, it, it's not secured. Um, and, and you would never be able to get the advantages of the work that you put into a uh, whatever it is that you were doing. So in the civil society, you have you you have the duty uh, in order to maintain the civil society to obey what the whatever the laws are 
And if you violate the laws, then you have to accept your punishment, right? Uh, it's a very simple legal structure um, where you gain the uh, protection of uh, the civil society, but on condition that you obey its laws. And if you disobey its laws, you have to, um, you know, you, you have to accept whatever punishment they give you with one exception, namely, if the society wants to take your life. Because the whole point of giving up your, your rights was to protect your, you know, protect your existence. But if the society is, is going to take your, is going to execute you, then what do you think Hobbes would tell you to do? Anybody? Just unmute yourself. Uh, you'd fight for your life. Yeah, basically run away. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Do whatever you need in order to stay alive. All right. But that's the one exception um, for Hobbes. You simply have to take whatever punishment you get for violating whatever the laws are, because the whole point of the social contract was that um, you had to obey the laws in order to um, uh, to secure your own right, your own existence and your own property. Um, and therefore, if you violate those laws, you have to take whatever punishment it is. A very different understanding of who we are is John Locke, um, who is also writing in the 17th century, also a Brit, uh, but has a very different understanding of the human being. The human being is rational. And because the human being is rational, people recognize that you can't do everything on your own. So you need to be able to, the reason why you create society is so that you can have roads and bridges and you can have public education and culture and and so on down the line, right? Because there are all kinds of things that you cannot do on your own, and you realize that if you're a rational human being. So um, it is Locke who first wrote, and Jefferson, 100 years later, cribbed this from Locke. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and Jefferson said the pursuit of happiness, Locke had said, life, liberty, and property. All right? So we are individuals with rights, endowed by our creator. Now, notice, by the way, both Locke and Jefferson, Jefferson, along with all the rest of the founding fathers, uh, were deists. They did not believe in a um, in a personal God. They believed in a creative force. So we're endowed by our creator. He, he, wanted, to, he wanted to make sure that you didn't, didn't mistake the, didn't think for a moment that he, Jefferson, was a theist, right? That he believed in a personal God. We're endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. To secure these rights, governments are instituted by men. That's the next line in the Declaration of Independence, right? So the reason why you have to obey the, obey the law is because it, it secures your rights. Um, and it's a uh, and and the law itself um, is the, is a product of your own device um, because um, well back in high school many many years ago um, I had a terrific teacher for U.S. history um, and she spent a third of the first semester on the U.S. Constitution and um, and then we were going to have this big test on the U.S. Constitution. And she told us what the first question was going to be and what the first answer was going to be. 
The first question was, who wrote the Constitution? And if you said Jefferson and Madison, that was wrong. Who wrote the Constitution? We the people. Now, I have to tell you, I don't remember many lesson plans from high school, but that was that clearly made an impression on me, right? Because it, it's just so counter counterintuitive. But at the same time, it, it really made the point. Now, the reason why the... Um, the law is authoritative is because it is of our own making as a community. And we come together as a community um, for the rational reasons of trying to cooperate with each other on things that we could not possibly do on our own. So the, there, if you make a mistake or if you violate the law, you uh, the word sin is usually used in religious context. So I'll say if you're a criminal in some way, right, if you violate the law, um then what you need to do is, again, accept whatever the penalty is. However, because you are rational just as much as everybody else, you get to do more of what Rick was just talking about. You get to to argue your case much more more, more carefully, right? Um, because presumably the people who are judging you are also rational human beings and also very much interested in preserving rights and therefore the the whole regime of the of the government has to be much more uh, tuned to preserving rights and much less attuned to punishment. Okay, um, so those are two very different understandings of who the human being is, and then what happens when somebody violates the law. Now let me take Christianity. Um, in Christianity, this goes back to at least Paul in the New Testament. Um, but it um but it gets expanded in um in people like augustine in particular and then in the 4th century and fifth and early 5th century and then even more so by people like calvin and luther um in the 17th century right uh, in the 16th century sorry um i as a, as in the, in the christian understanding of things i am a sinner by birth i inherit original sin Right. So original sin means that I'm a sinner in my origins, in my DNA, as it were. And to add insult, to, add insult to, to injury, um, I have no ability to overcome my sinfulness. Uh, the way that Paul puts it in the New Testament is there's no salvation by works. You can't do anything in order to overcome your sinfulness. So the only thing that will save you from your sinfulness is belief in a supernatural intercessor, namely Jesus, who is God's only begotten son, whom God sends to die. God, Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, right? So that we can then be forgiven for the sins that we, that we commit. And the, and, and this is, um, this is very thoroughgoing. Um, it's a, um, especially in evangelical Christianity, uh, which is, I mean, a, a direct line from Paul to Augustine to Luther, especially Calvin, um, to contemporary evangelical Christianity. By the way, there's another important line in Christianity that goes in a very different direction, um, which is through, uh, through Aquinas, uh, who was very much influenced by Maimonides, uh, through Aquinas and then through some of the more recent Catholic teachings about human beings and all of that. Um, so what I'm talking about is really evangelical Christianity. Um, 
what you uh, you are a sinner, and the only way that you can be uh, forgiven for your sins is if you um, believe in Jesus. Okay, so um, I once was for my many sins in front of five thousand evangelical Christians in, at the San Diego Convention Center to debate whether Jesus rose from the dead. Clearly, I have major sins here. Okay, now you know, and of course, the the all of the proof texts for Jesus rising from the dead were from the New Testament. So I pointed that out to the audience, right? Um, but I said, you know, I really don't care whether you believe whether Jesus rose from the dead, as long as you don't try to convert us. That's the reason, real reason why I was there, right? To say that you need to understand that. As the, as the Catholic tradition has said, starting with Vatican II, is that this, I know this comes from Paul, it's uh, Paul already in the New Testament, right? God never forgoes his covenants and God already made a covenant with the Jewish people before made a, God made a a covenant with the Gentiles, right? And they became Christians. So you should at least, you should respect that and not try to convert us. That's the real reason why I was there. But the first question I was asked when it was question and answer, was, do Jews believe in forgiveness? And I said, yes, Jews believe in forgiveness, but it has to be earned. And you heard 5,000 evangelical Christians go, <gasps> right? Because that completely undermines the reason why they're Christian, right? I mean, the whole point of evangelical Christianity is to be forgiven for your sins even before you, you do them. Um and it's part of the lure of evangelical Christianity, part of the attraction, part of the reason why it's very popular in prison environments, right? Because you get, you know, because basically you accept Jesus as your savior and, and then all of a sudden you have a clean slate, right? Whereas what we say is very demanding, um, as you know, in regard to the process of Chuva. We'll get there. Okay. Um, but I am a sinner by birth. I cannot do anything in order to overcome that except to believe in a supernatural intercessor who will redeem me from my sins. Now, that doesn't mean that I should sin at will, right? I mean, because the other side of the Christian story is that Jesus does very nice things in his life. He helps the poor. He tries to, to cure the sick and, and all of that, right? So where so that's another side of Christianity. So that's where you get things like Catholic social services and Lutheran and hospitals and Lutheran hospitals and Lutheran social services and so on down the line, right? Um, where you get the, the, the notion of a, a Christian lady or gentleman, right? Um, who is really interested in following the model of Jesus. Now, of course, when I, when I talk, I do a lot of interfaith work. When I talk to Christians, I say, I, I want to point out to you that means following the model of a Jew. Right. Because Jesus was Jewish. Right. But it's but that's OK. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just playing with them and and having some fun with them. But but I want to remind them that Jesus was a Jew. And to the extent that he was really interested in this life and interested in trying to make it uh, better for everybody, that's the Jew in him. Right. And that's that's part of of the uh, that, that's the Jewish part of whatever the Christian tradition is that Christians um, uh, Christians embrace. Um so that's the other side of it, right? So I am, um, if I, if I'm a Christian, I am a sinner by birth, but I also am a, I'm supposed to be a follower of Jesus and try to, um, embody in my life the kinds of things that Jesus did, 
in his life for other people. Okay. Um, the, the Jewish tradition is unlike Hobbes and unlike Locke and unlike uh, Christianity. Um, there, there are two basic pieces to the way that the Jewish tradition understands us. One is that we were created in the image of God. That you get already in the very opening chapters of Genesis, right? Now, of course, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Not surprisingly, Jews disagree about that, okay? Um, but, I mean, what I would say, and, and this is just Elliot Dorfogging, um, is that I think the shot, the simple meaning of the term in the context of the Torah itself is uh, comes out of uh, the Garden of Eden story. Right. Where Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, they eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. So they know what they know, what right and wrong, good and bad are, and they're able to act on that knowledge. But they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden lest they um, they eat of the fruit of, uh, of eternal life and therefore become like gods. Right. That's what the door says there. So being like God means that you know the difference between right and wrong and you live forever. Now, we don't, we, none of us lives forever, but we do know the difference between right and wrong. And I think that's what the Torah means by saying that we were created in the image of God. Maimonides, typical rationalist, thinks that what we, that the image of God in us is our ability to reason discursively, right? Our, our ability to, to make arguments and to respond to each other in intellectual terms. Right. Others within the tradition thinks that we are the image of God within us is that we are spiritual. We are not just um, we're not just another form of animal life, um, but God breathes life into us. And so it's God that breathes life into us. And so consequently, there is a, a, a piece of, of God in us that we are able to to try to relate to God in that way. Others like the, the Martin Buber would say that uh, what is the spirit of God, the image of God in us, is that we are able to relate to human beings in I-thou relationships and not just in I-it relationships. That is, we are able to interact with other human beings um, in ways that uh, that celebrate, that recognize and respect and even celebrate um, their their inherent worth as human beings, right? Um there's a rabbinic, there's one, there's a Talmudic um, passage which says that the, the image of God in, a, is, in us is the fact that we stand upright rather than walking on all fours. Um, that's probably not one you would have thought of, but anyway, um, that's, a, that's yet another uh, interpretation of it. But, but if I go, but, but if I go to, to the original one, which I, I think really is the original one, <clears throat> one part of us that is the image of God in us is that we have the, the knowledge of right, wrong, good, and bad, and we have the ability to act on that. And another piece of it, and this also is in the Torah itself, uh, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 21, when somebody uh, commits a capital crime and is being hanged, then you have to take the body down before nightfall because a hanging body, in other words, a dead body, is kikelalat elohimi. It's like it's a curse of God. So clearly, even somebody who has committed a capital crime um, nevertheless has the image of God within that person. That doesn't mean that you should either approve of or even condone 
whatever the person did to to uh, to um, warrant capital punishment. But it does mean that even the worst of the worst of us um, are nevertheless embody a certain spark of the divine that has to be taken into account, even in terms of the death penalty, which leads, by the way, to a whole other thing about Judaism and the death penalty. But that's probably for another time. OK, um, but but the point that the Jewish tradition, the rabbis didn't like the death penalty at all. And um, even though there are 36 different offenses in the Torah that lead to the death penalty, by the time you get to the rabbis, the rabbis say a, a court, a Jewish court that condemns a, uh, one person to death in seven years is a bloody court. Another rendition of that once in 70 years. And Rabbi Akiba and Rabbi Tarfon say that if they were in the court, there would never be a capital sentence. So if you ever thought that the rabbis are, are living the same religion as the Torah, think again. Okay, we're, um, the, our tradition is very much a developing tradition. Um, but the point is that in that line in Deuteronomy, you can see that the, the uh, image of God within us is even in those people who clearly do not distinguish between right and wrong appropriately and do not act appropriately because if they were subject to the death penalty, they clearly did not act appropriately. And nevertheless, there is a kind of inherent worth in every human being. Again, that doesn't mean you, you, you need to like everybody. It certainly doesn't mean you have to condone what everybody does, right? But there is a kind of inherent worth in every human being that this doctrine announces, okay? The other part of the Jewish understanding of who we are um, begins in Genesis chapter 8. Kilev ben Hadam Ramin Urav. The heart of the human being is, is bad from his youth. And the rabbis say, um, well, actually, there is a Yetzer HaRa and a Yetzer HaTov. We have an inclination to do bad and an inclination to do good. And that those are correct translations of those terms, but you have to be very careful here because the rabbis also tell a story that at one point, um, all the righteous people of the, of the world ask God to take away the to take away the evil inclination. And then chickens did not lay eggs. People did not build houses. They did not get married, did not, get married, did not have children. Now, those are all good things. Right. So the Yetzir Hara really is not necessarily the bad in us. It's the self-serving in us, as opposed to the Yetzir Hatov, which is the altruistic inclination in us. And the rabbis say, right, that the we are born with both of them. But the Yetzir Hara is immediately effective at them from the moment of birth. All you have to do is look at an infant and you'll know what, what we're talking about. Um it's me, me, me. As a matter of fact, we have very good evidence uh, psychologically that infants don't even recognize that mom and dad are separate from themselves until about three or four months after birth. Right. Um, they're just simply extensions of themselves that are there to do the infant's bidding. Right. And it takes 13 years, the rabbi say, for the Yetzir Hatov, the altruistic instinct, to be fully developed. Hence, Baron Bat Mitzvah at 13. And, of course, this happens developmentally. It happens over time that children learn, you know, what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. Um, I don't know if you've ever read Robert Fulgram's book, Whatever I Needed to Learn, I Learned in Kindergarten. 
Whatever leaders know, I learned in kindergarten. If you've never read it, you should read it. First of all, it's very funny, but he's got a list of about 250 things that you learn in kindergarten. Like, do not hit other people, right? You need to cooperate. You need to be responsible. You need, and so on down the line, right? A whole series of things he learned in kindergarten, okay? Um, and then from the time of 13 on, um, we human beings are a balancing act between our, our self-serving instinct and our altruistic instinct. And what we need to do is that kind, we need to do that kind of balancing act. Um, and the rabbis recognize, well, I mean, why, why is it called, why is the self-serving instinct called the Yetzir Hara, the evil instinct? Because we're more likely to call, to cause harm to other people if we're worried about ourselves. As, and, and in contrast, if, if we're worried about other people, we're more likely to do good things. That said, the rabbis recognize that too much of the Yetzir Atov, of the, of, a, of the altruistic instinct is not good either. Um, and they tell the story of a man who was so altruistic that whenever he had money, he would give it away. So on the day of his daughter's wedding, the court had to send emissaries of the court to his home to accompany him to the wedding for fear that he would give away his daughter's dowry on the way to the wedding. Right. Um, you can be too altruistic. Um, and I actually know of a couple. I'm sure there are others, but I know of a couple. Um, who actually got divorced over this issue. Uh, the man was completely altruistic, completely giving. And the, the woman thought that, felt that she could never catch up. Right? It was, it was a losing game. There was, there was no, there's no balance here. There is no re- reciprocity. Uh, and she simply couldn't stand that. Um, and because, you know, marriage is a cooperative venture. For that matter, friendships are cooperative ventures. And, and friendships or marriages that are very one-sided often do not last very long. Um, unless that just happens to be part of the dynamic that was from day one and everybody accepts it. Um, so, I mean, I have, I'm thinking of one friend. I, I have yet to, I, I don't remember in all these years when he called me, I have to call him, right? It's just the nature of the game. And if I want to have this friendship, I've just got to be aware of that, Right. But in the vast majority of friendships, it's, it's mutual, right? And each member of the, uh, each one of the friends, um, takes on some responsibility for maintaining the friendship and for cultivating it. And all the more so if you're talking about, um, about spousal relationships, um, or even parent-child relationships, right? Over time, right? That there, there needs to be mutuality there. There needs to be that kind of, of, of mutual, um, contribution to the relationship. So similarly, for so the way that the Jewish tradition understands us is that once we are 13 or above, um, we have both a Yetzirah Ra and a Yetzirah Tov, and we need to cultivate both and we need to uh, balance them. And um, the rabbis tell the story of two men, you probably have heard this, who are in a desert and they find that they only have enough water for one of them to make it back to civilization and so the question is, who gets the water, right? And the ultimate answer is by Rabbi Akiva, uh, whoever owns the water bottle gets the water. Um, because on the one hand, you're not allowed to commit to commit suicide any more than you're allowed to commit murder. You're not allowed to steal. The one who does not own the, bo- the bottle of water is not allowed to steal it because that would be murder under these circumstances. On the other hand, the one who owns it is not allowed to give it away 
or even share it at least and, and by, because by hypothesis there's not enough for both of them to make it back to civilization and you're not allowed to commit suicide either so chayacha kodmin your life comes first um and hence what you get it's very much by the way like what you were told on airplanes right if the air mask come down put the air mask on your your face first and then help others because if you're not okay you can't help anybody else so in the same sort of a way your life comes first but once you you are able to to help yourself and then your immediate family it's concentric circles and then your your local jewish community then the larger jewish community and then the non-jewish community um and the fact that the the rabbis in the second century, this is in a Tosefta, say that we Jews have an obligation to help the poor of the non-Jewish community, the sick of the non-Jewish community, uh, to help people bury their dead if they're not Jewish and help, excuse me, and help them mourn is really remarkable because I can guarantee you that the Romans at the time were not interested in helping the Jews of the time in those ways, right? So the fact that the Jewish community says that once you secure the welfare of individuals and then families and, and local Jewish community and the larger Jewish community that we have an obligation to the general community is, and this goes from the second century on, um, this is really, I think, rather remarkable if you're looking at it historically and, and something we should be very proud of. Okay? So we have this balancing act. Now, what happens when you mess up? First of all, do you mess up a lot? You bet you do. Uh, at least the liturgy assumes so. Uh, because three times a day in the Amidah, we say, Forgive us, our Father, for we have sinned. Right? Not just the high holidays. Three times a day during the weekdays, right, that we say that. Right? And what is the, and why is that? Um, well, I'm going to tell you another story. Um, for 16 years, I was the rabbi in residence at Camp Ramon Oline. And, um, there was one summer in which there were two bunks of 12-year-old boys who from day one were just at each other. I don't know why, just at each other, okay? So the counselors tried to do what they could do uh, and were not successful. The Roche Da, the division head, tried to do what he could do for that. Um, the camp psychologist was there. No, no, so, if, you know, as the last resort, they called the rabbi. So I handed out Sidurim. I ended up prayer books. And you could see that there are 12, two bunks of 12, 12 boys, of 12, 12 year old boys each. So 24 12 year olds in front of me. Okay. And you could see their eyes roll. Right. Okay. 12 year olds are not, are not good at, at hiding their feelings. Right. Uh, there's the rabbi doing his thing again. All right. So I had them open. I said that the Amidah, which we say three times a day, has three blessings at the beginning and three at the end. The three blessings at the beginning basically identify who the characters are. We are um, blessed as God, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, the, 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 the God that we've known for generations. That's the first bracha. Second, God is, and God is, again, Abraham, God is the shield of Abraham, right? Uh, second bracha, God is powerful, even to the point of Mechayeham of of reviving the dead. And third, God is even holy. God is W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly different from us. Okay? That's the first three blessings. So it basically identifies the characters in the novel. So then, what's the first blessing after that? 
You grant us knowledge and you give us understanding. May you be gracious to give us that's factual knowledge, the stuff that you'd like to have on Jeopardy. Okay? Bina, bet yud nun, bain means between. Bina is analytic knowledge, the ability to distinguish one thing from another. Remember Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. That's analytic knowledge. That's bina. The haskel, sechel, is experiential knowledge, wisdom, right? Give us wisdom. So that's the first, it's almost, it's almost Cartesian. Descartes, remember, says that, how do you know, what is the basis of all your knowledge? I think, therefore, I am. At least I, I understand that I have knowledge. And, and the first, the first paragraph of the middle section of the Amidah is almost that, right? We thank God for being aware. So what are we aware of? The very next sentence of the paragraph is, Hashivenu avinu la Torah kaka, bring us back to your Torah. So the first thing that we're aware of is that we mess up. And then the, set, the third paragraph is, forgive us for we have sinned. So I said to these boys, um, why is it that, um, you know, if you think that somebody has wronged you, that you do not want to forgive them? And, you know, and they were very forthcoming, right? Um, can you tell me some of the answers that you think they might have given? Why would they not want to forgive? It's powerful. Pardon me? <clears throat> Anger and not forgiving is powerful. That's right. They're they're just angry. They've been wronged and they're angry. They're they're not in a forgiving mood. Why else but, do they not want to forgive? Because they think they the one who feels wrong feels they need something first that is yes. maybe before the other one is more than the other one's willing to give. That's right. That the, whoever did something wrong has to warrant forgiveness, has to do something to make forgiveness justifiable. Good. What's another reason they don't like to forgive? Makes them look weak. Yes, it makes them look weak. Is that they're they're losing the moral high road, as it were, right? And it makes them look weak. Um, what's another reason they don't want to forgive? They because feel- denial. Because denial is not just a river in Egypt. They want to just move on and put it behind them? No, no, that would be a reason to forgive. But the, the reason that they don't want to forgive is that they, they feel like hold, They like right. holding on to the anger. Yes, right. And they feel vulnerable. And they don't trust this other person. This person or these people did them wrong in the past, and how do they know they're not going to do them wrong again? Right? So they're not interested in in, in making life whole with these people. Right? It's they don't want to. All right. So I said, okay. So, so now remember the, 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 the liturgy says, bring us back to your Torah and then forgive us. So how can we ask God to forgive us if we never forgive? So why would you ever, given all of these reasons not to forgive, why would you ever forgive? And one boy said, because otherwise you won't have any friends. <laughs> um, and I thought he was very astute, actually, um, the, um, because, I mean, he recognized that we all mess up, right? And that at some point or another, you've got to, you know, you have to, to allow that, allow forgiveness to happen if you want to maintain the relationship. Now, that, though, 
uh, but then the question is, well, what warrants forgiveness, right? And that is what, that is this whole process of tshuva uh, that we have for individuals and also for communities. Um, basically, uh, Maimonides is the one that really um, spells it out most in his laws of tshuva, laws of Maimonides, of, of tshuva. But basically, it is, first of all, you have to acknowledge that you did something wrong. Then you have to apologize for it. You have to show remorse, right? Then third, you have to compensate to whatever extent you can. And then sometimes the way I put it is Judaism is a put up or shut up religion, right? Then you, the next time the same thing happens, you have to act differently. And you haven't done full tshuva until you have acted differently when the same, the same temptations occur. Okay. Um, so that's the, that's sort of the, the core of the tshuva process. And so I asked them, um, what would it take for whatever you think the other bunk did wrong? First of all, tell me what you think the other bunk did wrong. So they both articulated their grievances, right? So then I said, okay, well, what would it take for bunk one to forgive bunk two and bunk two to forgive bunk one, right? And we worked out a contract, okay, about how that's going to happen. Now I can't say that they, 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 they became best friends by the end of the summer, but at least they were civil to each other, right? So, I mean, to a certain extent, this actually worked. Um, now the same sort of thing, um, is true on a communal level. Um, uh, I've been part of the priest rabbi dialogue, uh, since it first began in 1973, sponsored by the Archdiocese of uh, Los Angeles and the Board of Rabbis of Southern California. Uh, and I've co-chaired it now for the last 20 years or so. Um, <clears throat> it's a group of uh, about 10 priests and rabbis uh, who meet together once a month. And we did a number of educational documents for, for synagogues and churches uh, for about 20 or 30 years. And now we're uh, doing some some learning ourselves about, you know, on a, on a clergy level about the other's tradition uh, in a variety of different ways, maybe to create uh, some educational materials for clergy about the other tradition. Um, so at one point in the 90s, so the priest rabbi dialogue had been going for about 20 years now by then, um, the priest asked the rabbis, what would it take for the Jewish community to forgive the Catholic community for what it did and did not do during the Second World War? Now, what the first thing that we recognized is that everybody around the table either did, was not born during the Second World War or was an infant. I mean, I was born in 1943. So I was two years old by the time the war was over, right? Um, barely, not even two years old because it, it ended two weeks before I was born. Anyway, they, before my second birthday. Um, so the, so the first question is, how can you, how can people who live in another generation speak for people who suffered in an earlier generation, even if they're part of the same community, right? And the the second thing that became clear was that the um, you had to distinguish between among three things. One is um, uh, pardon, one is forgiveness, and one is reconciliation, okay? Pardon... Sometimes they're used interchangeably. So if you bump into somebody in the street and say, pardon me or forgive me or excuse me or something, 
that's all that's all um you know uh, synonymous but if you're using these terms in very specific terms a governor issues a pardon what that means is that the offense still exists but the punishment stops okay so that's a pardon reconciliation is that you have you decided to become you know, to continue to be friends no matter what has happened before and forgiveness means that you have done something in order to try to warrant um the other party the the, the victimized party um from um from feeling victimized okay you've done something to try to repair the wrong now sometimes people can do everything in their power to try to repair the wrong and nevertheless the other party doesn't want that that party to darken his or her doorstep again right uh you see this a lot if you're talking about couples where one of them is cheated on the other right sometimes the party and by the way thanks to women's liberation the statistics now is that women cheat on on their husbands as much as men cheat on their wives um but that's a whole other story um the um but if the um but and, and even if the, the cheating party has done whatever they can to try to say that was a mistake on my part and nothing and all of that sometimes it, they just cannot reconcile sometimes there is no act of forgiveness but there is reconciliation for example japan has never for act has never asked for forgiveness of the united states for bombing pearl harbor and yet ever since the end of the second world war there have been very close relationships between japan and the united states on all kinds of levels on military levels on business levels and cultural levels all kinds of stuff right so sometimes there be, can, can be reconciliation without forgiveness sometimes there can be forgiveness i forgive you but i just don't want to talk to you again right and i don't want to stay married to you again so sometimes there can be forgiveness without reconciliation and sometimes there can be pardon without either one of them right um so you need to make a distinction among those things so if we were to talk about simply reconciliation given the fact that the priests around the table were not the ones that that acted wrongly during the second world war and the rabbis around the table were not the ones who were the immediate victims of the suffering maybe some of their their families were but they themselves were not right so given that um what is possible and i and 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 what we talked about is what the catholic church has done and what it might still do in order to uh to warrant reconciliation and maybe even forgiveness and i must say that the catholic church has done an awful lot along those lines um uh nostra aetate the second vatican document about the relationship of um catholics to jews in which they said first of all not all Jews of the time of Jesus nor any any Jews since are responsible for the death of Jesus it's a major step this is 1965 right because through the middle ages Jews were were some of the reasons why Jews suffered so much is because Christians saw them as Christ killers and here comes the the second Vatican council and says not all Jews of the time of Jesus and no Jews since are responsible for the death of Jesus second that god doesn't renege on any of his covenants so another widespread christian doctrine for 2000 years namely supersessionism that the new covenant 
supersedes and takes the place of the old covenant. And therefore, if Jews are not becoming Christian, they're just either stubborn or blind. Right. Um, that goes out the wayside with Vatican II. Right. Third, they were interested in uh, in friendly relationships between friendly dialogues between both laity and clergy among the two religions. That's what led to the priest rabbi dialogue. And so in California, there was also uh, a, a respect life committee of lay people, you know, Jewish, Jew, Jewish and, and Catholic lay people in the 70s and, thir- and 80s. Right. I don't know if it still exists, but the um, but, the, but they've done a lot. And then later, Pope Paul, John Paul II, um, who remember grew up in Krakow, Poland, right, um, went to uh, went to Jerusalem and was at the wall and put a prayer in uh, the wall and asked for forgiveness on behalf of the Catholic Church and that declared anti-Semitism a Catholic sin and that any Catholic who is anti-Semitic is thereby sinning. Right. And he established diplomatic relations with Israel between the Vatican and Israel. So they've done a lot. It doesn't mean they've done everything. And it certainly doesn't mean that 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 this is all known in the Catholic Church Um, in 1986. And then again, uh, in 1999, I was in Poland teaching Catholic seminarians and seminary professors. Um, And in. uh, the second time, and Marlon came with me the second time around, so 96, I think it was. It, that's right, 89 and 96. Um, and in, and I was in Warsaw, Krakow, and Lublin. And in Krakow, um, they, they wanted me to teach, uh, seminarians, about 40 or 50 seminarians. Um, and so they wanted me to teach certain things. So I would say a line in English and Father Marion, about 32 years old or so, lovely guy who somehow or another knew native Polish, but knew English well. So he would translate me into Polish. Um, and then when the questions and answers were, he would translate the Polish into English so that we could have that conversation. And I deliberately left time in the third day that we had together for them to ask me whatever they wanted. So the first young man, I think he's about 20, raised his hand and he said, why did the Jews kill Jesus? So I had to teach. This is a rabbi in Krakow. John Paul's home, 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 home city, right? I had to teach these Catholic seminarians what their church says about Jews, right? It was, it, it was, it was wild, is what it was. Um, and Father Marion said to me, "Well, you need to know that you are not only the first rabbi that these people have ever seen, ever talked to. You're the first Jew they've ever talked to, right? And all they know about Jews." is what they hear on on Good Friday, right? And the Good Friday um, liturgy is the Jews say, kill them, right? So he was in Baton Levav, as Levi says, right? In the purity of his heart, he was just asking, why did you guys kill Jesus, right? And so I had to teach him what, teach them. We They clearly had not had that in their seminary education up to that point. They had clearly not learned what the church itself says about this stuff. And it depends very much upon which diocese you're in, what country you're in, and all of that, as to the degree to which this Vatican doctrine has been um, has been edu- has been taught to to to, to priests and, and nuns, let alone let alone to laity. So you need to, but they've done what they can, at least in many places, 
to justify at least reconciliation, maybe not forgiveness, maybe forgiveness, at least certainly not the need for forgiveness for people who were not alive at that time. Right. And you need to sort of try to figure it out that way. Um, very, um, a very different kind of a situation is in 1996, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, which is about 70% of America's Lutherans, uh, officially repudiated Luther's anti-Semitic comments. Not a small thing, right? For, I mean, the, the center of your church, who was a straight anti-Semite in all kinds of ways, right? And now the Evangelical Lutheran Church um, um, repudiated what Luther had said about Jews and Judaism, right? And then they created a commission of Lutheran theologians uh, to create a new Lutheran theology about Jews and Judaism, which they did um, with the help of six of us who do Jewish theology. They, they had us come to Gustavus Adolphus College, which is a Lutheran college about an hour and a half southwest of the Minneapolis airport. Um, and it was three days. And one of the six of us, Jews, Jews theologians, was supposed to talk about topic number one the first day, first morning, and then we we're going to talk, use the morning to talk about that, and then send the second person in the afternoon, and so on through three days. So the first morning, it was Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, whom some of you may know, um, really smart, really learned guy, and a wonderful person, right? So he gave his talk about whatever the topic was for about an hour. And then the other five Jews said, well, it's not quite that way, right? And then we are off and running, doing our thing, right? Why did you interpret this text that way? Why didn't you interpret it this way? What about this text that you didn't remember, that you didn't mention, and all of that, right? And then about an hour later, we looked up, and these Lutheran theologians are absolutely bug-eyed. One of them told me he thought we were going to strangle each other at any moment, right? Because if you are Lutheran, especially if you are Scandinavian Lutheran, you don't argue in public. You stare, you glare, you get an ulcer, but you do not argue in public. So one of the things that we have to teach each other is how you respect someone else, right? In our tradition, you respect somebody by listening carefully to what they say to the point that you ask questions about it and even argue about it. That's what respecting somebody else means, right? Whereas in their tradition, respecting somebody else means that you let them say whatever they want and you don't upset, you don't upset them. Um, so I mean, but they really, they created a new Lutheran theology. For, about Jews and Judaism, which is another a real important step to warrant forgiveness, right? Now, that's not true for the Missouri Synod or the Wisconsin Synod of Lutherans, that they're to the right of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. So that's a whole other story that we still have a lot of work to do with. Um, and similarly, the, the Presbyterians and a whole variety of others, right? But one of the things that one needs to understand is that when people do things wrong, they don't only do things wrong as individuals. They also do them as communities. And so what you need to, to talk about is not only the mechanics and the, the theology behind individual forgiveness and what warrants it, but also the, the, uh, the theology and the mechanics behind communal forgiveness. Um, and, um, all right, I will uh, do the, the term in, in, um, in, in the book to do the right and the good, which I did which I wrote, I, I actually have a chapter on communal forgiveness. And I talk about this issue with the Catholic Church and where it leads to. And in another book I did called Love Your Neighbor and Yourself, I have a chapter on individual forgiveness. Um, 
So if you if you're at all interested in that, just email me and I'll I'll give you those titles again. Uh, e Dorf E D O R F F at A J U dot E D U. I'm in the Bethlehem book also. E Dorf E D O R F F at A J U dot E D U. But let me just return repeat the titles to do the right and the good is the one on social ethics. And that's the one about communal forgiveness to do the right and the good. And the other is uh, love your neighbor and yourself is, which is on personal ethics. Um, and that's the, that one has a chapter which tells and starts with the story about the two bunks of boys and then goes on into uh, the question of what constitutes um, individual forgiveness. Okay. Let me, first of all, ask for forgiveness. We're talking too much. And um, and ask for whatever questions or comments you have. Just un- just um, unmute yourself and speak up. Ra- Rabbi, may I have two short ones? Sure. Um, first is I just wanted to know if by chance you'd ever seen archaeologist Jody Magnus or heard her explain the resurrection. I've never heard her. No. Um, the short version is, and I'm not going to remember the name of the follower, that it was on a Friday. Jesus was from the Galilee, a poor family, but a rich follower in Jerusalem had a rock-cut tomb. And because you don't leave the body on Shabbos overnight, it would be disrespectful to the remains. It was buried in the rock-cut tomb of this wealthy follower, whose name I forget. And then after Shabbos, the Jewish followers came and took the body off to the Galilee. And that's why the other, um, the other, right. And it works from an archaeological perspective. It works from an understanding of Jewish burial practices, etc. So that's one. The Jody but, Magnus. But, but don't try to convince Christians of that. Okay. I, I'm just saying. And the other is just to say, yeah. I grew up in a part of Pittsburgh. Um, my high school class had over 900 uh, people, most of whom were Eastern European Roman Catholics. And all throughout the 60s and at least my part of the 70s, in a written policy, my public high school took the position that Vatican II was wrong. Yeah. So they would never serve, for example, meat on Fridays because the five Jews and the one Serbian Orthodox and the handful of Protestants, it didn't matter that we couldn't eat meat. Not that I was going to eat the meat anyway, but um, and the only thing I'm going to add to that. So. When it turned out, which I could have guessed, that the Pittsburgh massacre shooter was from my neighborhood and dropped out of my school district, it was not a surprise because that's what I grew up with, the whole Jews had horns, blah, 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 blah. Anyway. Yeah, you know, it's – thank you for that. I I appreciate it. It's a – I I grew up in Milwaukee, um, and at the time there were no Jewish day schools. There are now, but there were not – then and uh, and I frankly doubt that my parents would have sent me to one anyway because in that generation you had to go to public school to be American, right? Uh, the idea was to you know become American. Um, so I had I went to the Jewish high school, um, public high school, which had maybe ten percent Jews and ninety percent non-Jews, right? So I had a number of Christian friends um, uh, along the way, and um, and I, I I did not have any from the Eastern Church. Um, they, I had, there had a number of Protestant friends and a number of Catholic friends, Roman Catholic friends. But I only came to know people from the Eastern Church uh, when I was in college, actually, um, in New York. I, w- I went to Columbia. And um, it's only then. And you're absolutely right. The Eastern churches are 
Well, there is a reason why they're not part of the Roman Catholic Church, right? They they don't recognize the Pope as being authoritative, and they don't recognize any of the Vatican documents as being authoritative, and they are, um, by and large, much more um, conservative with a small C, uh, right? Then is the uh, even the even the conservative uh, um, cardinals and archbishops of the Roman Catholic Church tend to be somewhat more liberal than than a lot of the the uh the priests and 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 um and clergy of the eastern uh, eastern church um but it varies a lot um because you need to know the eastern church is not one phenomenon um you know there's the the russian orthodox and the greek orthodox and the ukrainian orthodox and all kinds of other stuff right and and they don't get along with each other either so it's uh what can i tell you <laughs> okay by the way, I've been, I told you I've been part of the priest rabbi dialogue for since 1973. Um, let me tell you one thing I've learned. I, I used to think that the Catholic Church was really very well organized and really unified behind the Pope. Think again. Okay. Um, and especially if you talk about the American Catholics, right? Whom, uh, one of my, one of my priest friends says, uh, the way the Vatican sees American Catholics is the Pope's loyal opposition, <laughs> right? So, and it's certainly true in regard to the use of birth control, less about abortion, but certainly in regard to the use of artificial birth control among American Catholics, uh, which the vast majority of them use, um, at least in our generation. Not so true two generations ago, but yes, Larry or, or uh, Diane. Yeah, this is going to be me. Um I'm not quite sure where you're, where you're going in terms of where you intended to go in terms of contrasting Jewish and Christian thought. Um, but a couple of things strike me as being, um, perhaps different and you might want to comment on them. One is, and you talked about the, the high holidays. So we, we tend to think of guilt and acting of forgiveness as being individual actions and not collective, but the vidui, and the alchets are all done in the plural, and I've heard the explanation for why we do that since, <clears throat> since we, well, for a variety of, for a variety of reasons, but there really isn't, as far as I know, any collective, um, process of, of, um, recognizing, um, error or sin and asking for forgiveness. And I don't know if that's any different in the Catholic Church or, the, or in Christianity in general. And the second thing I'd like to hear your response on is Rabbi Sachs wrote an awful lot about the distinction between guilt cultures and, and, and shame cultures and um, I, guilt cultures basically being things where you're inward, you recognize you did something wrong, then you try to do something about it, and you can be forgiven, whether it be by the divine, divinely or by people, whereas in shame cultures, it's externally oriented, and you, 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 you try to avoid being shamed by others. But if you're shamed by others, there is no mechanism by which, at least that I know of, that you can actually be for, for forgiven. I don't quite know if those two come together at all or if there are distinctions between Jewish thought and Christian thought, but I thought I'd ask, raise those and ask the question. Okay. So uh, in the first one, um, uh, since you mentioned it, let's at least mention one or two reasons why the al is in the plural. Um, one reason is, is, is so you don't embarrass other people, right? So that people don't, uh, we say as a group that we've 
we we ask for forgiveness for a whole series of things uh, together so that you don't have to say, I did this, I didn't do that, you know, all of that kind of thing, right? A second reason why it's in the plural is because even even for those things that you may not want to admit yourself, uh, the liturgy has you admit them because chances are you did them. And if you look at the if you look at the list, an awful lot of them are about uh, sins of speech, um, because the the Jewish tradition, this is the other side of it. The Jewish tradition is much more um, both demanding and much more specific about the ethics of speech than, say, the American legal tradition, which is only interested in avoiding um, libel and slander. Um, in, in the Jewish tradition, the ethics of speech is much more demanding and much more specific. Um, so you, that's a whole other talk, and I'll be happy to talk to you about it at some point. But, but um, if you look at the list, uh, a lot of it has to do with, with sins of speech. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Um, and hence, it's probably the case that, that we all did it at one point or another, whether we recognize it or not. So that's another reason why it's in the plural. Um, the reason why, um, you know, it, it is the case that on, uh, and Yom Kippur, if you look at the, uh, the sacrifices that are given, you know, during the during after the Maharaji, the, you know, the, sorry, before the Maharaji, the, um, you know, the temple service, you see that first the, 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 uh, the high priest uh, brings up a, a, a sacrifice for himself, then for his family, then for the whole people of Israel. So there is a sort of sense that it is the whole people Israel that has sinned and that part of this, uh, part of the whole ritual is to try to, that's the Seir Azazel also that we read about on Yom Kippur morning, right? Where the idea is that, that sinfulness is in some ways done by individuals, in some ways by a community, and one needs to recognize both and try to, uh, and, and try to, um, do what one can to make up for both and then to, you know, um, and, and that can be partially ritually done and, and partially it has to be done in terms of interpersonal relations and, and, and what makes for that. Right. Um, and by the way, the, the, the process is, um, you know, is, uh, is, is very, uh, well, as I, I said, spelled out very, very in an organized way by Rambam, but long before Rambam, um, you get, um, you get, first of all, in the temple service, the sin offerings and the guilt offerings and all of that, right? Those were attempts to try to, uh, to alleviate the burden of sin, right? But you also get, I mean, in the Mishnah, um, maybe in a, in a context that you would not have thought of, um, the, in chapter eight of Bhavakama, it's the laws of personal injury. What happens if I, I hit you? And, and maybe even cause you some injury. So there are five different remedies that are spoken about there. But then toward the end of the chapter, the Mishnah says, and even if, let's say I hit you, even if I, I, I pay you the, the money for all of these remedies, I am not forgiven until I ask for forgiveness. And if I ask for forgiveness and I've done anything, everything I can to, uh, to warrant it, um, and you, you still do not forgive me. I'm supposed to ask a second time and then a third time. And if you fail to forgive me, then it's your fault for not forgiving me. Right. This is toward the end of chapter eight of the Mishnah in Bhavakama. Right. 
So already in the Mishnah, there's a sort of sense that uh, what the boy said at that time, forgiveness has to be a two-way street, right? Uh, you have to be willing to forgive because otherwise you're not, not, not going to have any friends. And it's in society's best interest that people be friends and that people be, be willing to forgive each other, you know, in those ways. So, I, I mean, I think there is, um, you know, there is a lot both in the Torah itself, but even more so in the rabbinic tradition about both individual forgiveness and also communal forgiveness. Um, now, there isn't very much, I mean, in terms of communal forgiveness, there's not much of um, the interpersonal part. Most of that is the sacrifices and things like that, right? Um, but you do get, um, well, this, this Shabbat, we're doing Deuteronomy 20 and 21, uh, which are the laws of war. And, you know, if you're going to wage war, you first of all have to ask for peace before you wage war, right? So there is a sort of sense that the, um, you know, that you don't you really do not have a right to, to wage war against another population unless they have wronged you in some way, right? Um, and there are certain rules about the conduct of war, which got developed much later on. And it's, um, so I mean, there's not nearly as much of the, of the interpersonal part of this on the, on the communal level as there is on the individual level, but there is at least some of it. Now on the other issue in terms of shame and guilt, um, uh, there again, one of the five remedies in, in, in eight is in chapter eight of Babakama is for boshet, for shame. And the Talmud is very, uh, sophisticated about that. Um, it's not just the shame that the uh, person who was shamed feels, right? But it also is what happens if the person was sleeping and didn't hear it at all, but family members heard it. And the family members found it as being degrading. <laughs> or other members of the community heard it and see it as being a degrading comment. So even, even then, the perpetrator has to pay for boshet, even if the... The victim never heard it or never was affected by it or never really saw it as being shameful or being intended to be shameful. So, I mean, you know, a comment like, um, you know, um, fatty, fatty, boom, boom. I remember this from my childhood, uh, which clearly was not uh, kind. I'll leave it at that. Right. Um, And what does that what does that mean? Right. And by the way, kids can be really mean to each other. Right. Um, and part of what learning what you need to do and what you need not to do is uh, is call each other names. And despite the fact, you know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Not true. Names hurt people a lot. Um, and so part of it is, you know, the shame part of this is very much in the Jewish tradition, uh, as is the guilt part of this. I mean, you know, I mean, that's that's almost uh, notorious in the Jewish tradition. Right. You know, all the jokes about it. Um, oh, I, I won't go through any of those now, but, uh, you, you know, I mean, so I haven't read Rabbi Sachs's essay. But the point is that uh, it seems to me that there is both shame and guilt in the Jewish tradition. And there is um, and there, there's a lot of worry about shaming other people. Uh, and there are remedies when you do it, you know, things that you have to do in order to make up for it. And there are, um, 
Uh, and there are, by the way, prohibitions against it. Uh, the rabbis say that if you are somebody who literally who shames somebody else, but literally means turns that person's face white, it's as if that person murdered the other person. And the same sort of thing that would happen if the person literally murdered the other person and the blood drained from that person's own face. So the tradition is really not at all happy about shaming other people. And it's not, and it's willing to, to impose certain notions of guilt, but it also recognizes when it's, as my grandmother would say, too, too, right? Too much. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.